Hi, this is Yolanda, and I'm sharing with you the memoirs of President Joseph Smith III, 1832 to 1914, and we're on chapter eight, which is entitled Romance. And we shall begin. Early infatuations. There are few lives in which at some period an element of romance does not enter. Mine is no exception to the rule, and I suppose these memoirs would be deemed faulty should I fail to note whatever of a romantic nature was in the occurrences which have marked my career. I believe I have always cherished a tender and reverential feeling towards the opposite sex. <clears throat> this feeling may have been the result of inborn attitudes, or it may be an outgrowth of the extreme love I had for my mother, whose character seemed to me a superlatively lovely and lovable one. My first sweetheart was a schoolmate named Lydia, the daughter of Bishop Edward Partridge. She was a little older than I, but that fact, while it seems incongruous now, to think of it, did not seem to distract from the fervour of my boyish regard for her. I hardly remember when this infatuation began, but it was before the tragic events of 1844, and it lasted until in the exodus, which took place in 1846. She, with her father's family, including sisters Eliza and Emily, removed from Nauvoo. <clears throat> During the sojourn of our family at Fulton City from September 1846 until February 1847, my sister Julia and I were well received in the younger social circles of that little town. A love for social functions would, was awakened at that time within me, and from the date of our return to Nauvoo, I mingled freely in the society of the place. The circle in which I moved was the best the city afforded, for, with the exception of a certain class of people to whom Robert Burns' description on co-righteous, um, I laugh because that's an unusual word, might be applied, the mansion house attracted those of the highest order and it was recognised as one of the centres of Nauvoo's social life. There was a good spirit of comradeship among all the young people there and the group included Catholics, Presbyterians, Methodists and Lutherians as well as those of no religious affi affiliations. All of these mingled freely in the social activities of the place without friction arising from denominational proclivities. I was a constant attendant at church services, usually the Methodist and Presbyterians, though occasionally attending Catholic services which were conducted in both the English and German languages. My stepfather, Major Biddemann, was the genial and popular host, and under his regime our house became a central gathering place for the young, the sedate and sober ones, as well as the jolly and fun-loving, all mingling in such happy associations as were afforded by apple parings, cork huskins, taffy pools and the various bees and parties usual to the period and locality. In the fall of 1850, when I was 18, at a party in a private home, I met a demure young woman named Amelia Helmer. She was the daughter of a man called Peter, or Pete Helmer, a gambler and wrestler by profession. But the girl was very bright, intelligent and attractive, and from the date of that party I became her cavalier and faithful attendant for, for quite three years. Her father and mother were not living together, though I frequently 
He frequently met the father about town. Notwithstanding his profession, he was a strictly sober man, abstaining from the use of drink and tobacco in any form. Once I questioned him about this unusual attitude, and he frankly answered that no professional gamester could afford to indulge in that, which would incapacitate him physically or mentally for the life was precarious and dangerous enough at best and required the exercise of all the clear faculties of mind and body untrammeled by excitement of drink and unbefogged by the influence of tobacco i met him years after his first this first acquaintance when he was 82 years of age and though deaf and with sight somewhat dimmed he still walked uprightly and steadily he always professed a great love for his daughters amelia and a young one and occasionally gave the family some financial help though for the most part they sustained themselves by the use of their needles <clears throat> There were times towards the end of this companionship with Miss Helm when I thought I should offer her my hand in marriage, but each time some influence or undefiable power seemed to prevent my doing so, and in time we drifted apart. I have no reason to doubt that the omniscient guide whose directing hand I have felt so often in my life had other plans for me in this regard, if such an important step as marriage may properly be included in such plans. For a time, Miss Helm received attentions from a young man named Venus Kimball. He had considerable property and was a gentleman of polished behaviour. But his friendship with the young lady did not ripen into love, which led to matrimony for both former other ties eventually. <coughs> Excuse me, I'll say that again. For both formed other ties eventually. A fleeting glimpse of possible romance caught in the brief moment of its passing was given me soon after it was in the fall of 1853 a company of mormon converts from england and scotland were en route to salt lake city and camped at kukuk while preparations were made to cross the plains during their sojourn their numbers of them came up to nauvoo i think that there's a bit of a miss <coughs> misprint there i will carry on to the city and incidentally some of the people connected with early church affairs one day a large party of young people came up on foot fully of full of gaiety hilarity and zest of joyous adventure they called at the mansion house to pay respect to mother and also perhaps to see what the sons of the prophet looked like among them were two very beautiful girls in age about 18 or 20 who stopped to converse with me longer than the others they stood in the doorway with arms entwined, leaning against the jams and chatting away with me as young folks will. <clears throat> Excuse me. I could not help but admire the lovely picture they made, especially noticing the more attractive one of the pair, a brown-eyed, brown-haired, finely proportioned young woman of excellent complexion and robust health. As I stood talking and admiring and noting the beauty and purity of these of this young woman's soul shining from her luminous eyes, I could scarce resist giving expression to the thought that raced through my mind, viz, that if she were going to Utah for the purpose of finding a husband, she need not go so far. But Prudence stepped in with misgivings as to the outcome should such a sudden romance and fanciful impulse be obeyed. The psychological moment was allowed to pass and soon I bade the young woman a rather regretful goodbye with a warm and very real desire in my heart that God's blessings should attend both her and her companion in the untried and unknown life towards which they were moving. The next heading is Miss 
Griswold. Not long after this incident, my attention was attracted to a girl of singular beauty, uprightness and grace of personal character. Her name was Emmeline Griswold and I first met her in a little candy store on Young Street. It was at our second meeting that my heart seemed drawn to her. The day was warm and Frederick and I were driving slowly up the hill leading to the temple. It had recently rained and the road was muddy. As we neared the top, we saw a young woman carefully picking her way along the muddy street, whom I saw, whom I soon recognised as the one I had met some months before in the candy store. Acting on sudden impulse, which even yet I can scarcely explain consistently, I said, Frederick, that is Miss Griswold. If you will allow me to use the buggy, I will pick her up and take her home and someday I will marry her if I can. Oh, sorry, that made me emotional. <laughs> um, imagine that. He must have had such strong feelings. Amazing. So let's carry on. He immediately got out of the buggy. I stopped it near the young lady, asked and received permission to take her home. From the moment the girl stepped into that vehicle on that summer day, I became her faithful attendant, escorting her to and from all our gatherings and paying continuous court to her with no other woman for companion or sweetheart. In the spring of 1856, I asked her to become my wife. In doing so, I talked freely of my circumstances and told her also that at that time I had no special intention of engaging in church work or becoming a minister, <clears throat> but added that it was possible I might do so. I told her plainly that as a child I had been baptised by my father, was a member of the church over which he presided at his death. And a statement I wished her to distinctly understand and most carefully consider if at any time I should feel it my duty to take up in an active way the religion of my father and to become its advocate and defender. I must be at perfect liberty to do so. Her mother was a member of the Methodist Church, but neither she nor my, her sister Carrie belonged. Though we frequently attended its revivals and other services, she had not shown a disposition to unite with them. I asked her to think over very carefully this whole matter of church affiliation and religious preference. And if she found she could not marry me with the definite understanding that I must be left at liberty to follow my own convictions in such matters, even to the point of becoming active in the religion of my father, if so led, I should prefer not to have her uh, consent to marry me. I made her this solemn promise, however, and assured her that she might rest securely upon it, viz. that I would have nothing to do with either the teaching or the practice of polygamy or plural marriage, for I regarded the doctrine as utterly false and repulsive. She requested time to consider my offer and promised to give me her answer within a week. At the end of the agreed time, I called for her at her mother's house and we went for a long ride. At its close, after I had helped her out of the buggy at her mother's gate, this woman I loved promised to become my bride, assuring me that her acceptance of my hands was given in harmony with the conditions I had stipulated. Miss Griswold had a brother-in-law who lived at Hastings, a town at the foot of the Upper Rapids below St Paul. He had lost his wife, one of the older Griswold girls, 
and soon after my engagement with Emmeline, he came down to Nauvoo to visit the family. Before he left, he invited Miss Griswold to return home with him for a visit. She accepted, making an arrangement with me that I should come up to Hastings in September to bring her home, the date for our marriage being fixed for October the 22nd. The days of this separation seemed long in spite of frequent interchange of messages. After a time, I noticed a little anxious note creeping into her letters, and soon she urged me to come for her a little sooner than we had at first planned. The reasons I discovered later, it seems that a promising young merchant of Hastings, also named Smith, by the way, had begun to pay court to her and had become quite persistent in pressing his suit. One day, when they were riding behind a spirited team. It ran away and they were both thrown from the buggy. Neither was injured much, but the young man indulged in a stream of profanity directed at the horses, which very much shocked and displeased the young lady. Thereafter, his attention was very obnoxious to her, though he still proffered and urged them. To add to her distress, her brother-in-law also began tormenting her with unwelcome attentions, and she decided she wanted to return to her mother and to me as soon as possible. As soon as I could arrange it, I went to Hastings on a steamer, our usual means of travel in those days being by way of the water. After visiting a few days in the home of the brother-in-law, we started for home in the same manner, stopping at Rock Island for a change of boats. The trip was without incident, except for the delight and pleasure we found in being in each other's society, and she was glad to be safely home again. <clears throat> the uh, next title is Marriage. The Griswold family had lived in Green County, Illinois, and some of the older children still lived there. When they learned that Emma, usually called so by the family, had promised to marry Joseph Smith, the son of the Mormon prophet, they vigorously protested and did all they could by writing to her to persuade the girl to abandon her intentions. Their opposition went so far that her brother Ambrose even came up from Green County and on the evening before our marriage was to take place he persuaded his mother and sister Carrie to go away with him to the home of a friend. Mrs. James McGregor, some five miles from Nauvoo. He endeavoured at the time to get Emma also to go with him, but she refused. Um, but she refused. Early the next morning, he returned and again tried persuasion and finally threats in his efforts to get my fiancé to break her engagement with me. This she steadily refused to do and he left and went away angrily. The result of these actions was that when I reached her home at the appointed hour, that home where I had courted her and which was to witness our marriage, I found it quite desolate, my lonely little bride-to-be forsaken by mother, sister and brother. Her only compa companion was a little neighbour German girl whom she had induced to come and stay overnight with her. This little miss and the officiating minister were the only witnesses of our marriage vows. Reverend Waldemeyer was a very genial, pleasant, companionable man. He used to delight in relating how I forestalled him when he leaned forward to kiss the bride after pronouncing the ceremony. Quickly intervening, I remarked, after me if you please. <laughs> this seemed to please him immensely. That kiss which I placed upon the lips of my bride upon this occasion was the second I had ever given her 
the first being given at her mother's gate as the seal of our troth on the evening she consented to become my wife no holier kiss than that first kiss in pledge was ever placed upon a woman's lips nor have i yet forgotten the swelling of my heart in acknowledgment of and tender gratitude for the maiden love of so beautiful and kind-spirited a woman the world was before us clothed in roseate hues of youthful hope and fancy and we faced it together happily nevertheless years as they come and go bring to all the common ills to which flesh is heir and the mutations of human affairs bring in the blighting of hopes the failure of expectations such fortunes were meted out to us not long after our marriage but even so i have never regretted a single experience of my early married life or the great and adoring love i gave to my first companion we've lived at her mother's house for a few days and then settled on the farm father had left us two and a half miles east of nauvoo there we spent the winter of eighteen fifty six to fifty seven and the summer following my brother frederick and i had worked this farm cooperatively for some three or four years having accumulated some stock and a fair equipment through managing it for mother while she and others looked after the hotel we had greatly enjoyed our farming together it was shortly after my wife and i were established on the farm that i was visited by elder edmund c briggs and samuel h Gurley, the mess the messengers sent by the brethren who were organising the scattered forces of the church in southern Wisconsin and northern Illinois. Further mention is made elsewhere of this interview. It was here also and about the same time that I was visited by elders George A. Smith and Arresta Snow of the Utah Church, an account of which is also to be found elsewhere in these memoirs. We shall begin. Early infatuations. There are few... <coughs> Parenthood is the next heading. <clears throat> One day in the summer following my marriage, wife and I drove to town. She to visit her mother and I to go still further down into town and to my mother's. During my stay at mother's, a thunder shower came up, attended by considerable disturbance in the elements. Upon harnessing the team to the wagon for the return home, one of the horses, a young spirited stallion, only partly broken or trained, was quite restive and excited. By the time I reached Mrs. Griswold's, it was apparent other showers were in imminent, but I thought we could reach the farm before the clouds would again break, and we started thither behind the lively team. We found the heavy rains had started a rise in the creeks in the country outside the city. We forded one of these swollen streams and had just crossed a bridge over another when with a great crash the structure washed away. Looking back, my wife saw what had happened and she screamed in fright, which accentuated the nervousness of the horses. By the time we reached home, the young colt was almost un unmanageable. I asked Emma to sit still until I could get down and tie the horses securely and then I would help her down with the high spring seat of the wagon. But before I could accomplish this, without waiting for any help from me, she sprang down out of the wagon. This proved to be a very unfortunate thing for her to do under the circumstances and early next morning I was under the necessity of taking her to her mother's. There, on the following morning, our first child, Emma Josepha, was born July 
28, 1857. My wife was frail and slender and did not have a very strong constitution. For several weeks after her confinement, she remained with her mother while I continued my work on the farm. Since there was no place at Mrs Griswold's to keep a team, I would leave my horses at the farm each night and walk into town after the day's work and back the next morning to begin my, my labours anew. The month of August was exceedingly hot and returning one evening from the farm, I found my wife quite ill and greatly distressed. She was burning with fever and the air of the room was stifling, all windows and doors being shut tightly. It seemed plain to me that she was not receiving adequate care. I watched her that night, attending to her needs and trying to make her comfortable, but early next morning went down to Mother's for a consultation with her over the situation. The result was that Mother prepared a room for Emma to which I could bring her, and where I could feel assured that she would have proper care, attention and nourishment. My stepfather had a buggy which he had constructed himself. It had an old-fashioned boot-shaped box but was one of the easiest riding vehicles I ever used. I equipped this odd but comfortable carriage with a small feather bed, blankets and pillows and hitching to it the gentlest horse we had, returned to my mother-in-law's and told her what I proposed to do. She stoutly objected to the plan, declaring it would kill Emma to be moved, but I said that Emma would die where she was with the worry she had been having. I added I did not think she would perish on the way and intended to remove her at all hazards. Amid tears and the strong protestations of her mother and sister, I gathered my little wife into my arms, lifted her gently into the buggy, laid the little child in her lap and by the easiest and smoothest route between the two places took her to my mother's. There she was placed in a comfortable, airy room with cheerful surroundings. Strict orders were given that no one should go near her who was likely dis to disturb her peace of mind with lubrous tales and forebodings of disaster such as I discovered had been her unfortunate experience with the visitors admitted to her presence in her mother's home. With the change of care and the difference in the moral atmosphere about her, it was not three hours until she felt better, and notwithstanding she suffered from a gathered breast, very painful to bear, in a month she was up and about practically restored to health. On to the next heading, to the homestead. We stayed on at Mother's for some time until I could arrange the rooms in the old homestead nearby and make it habitable. This property had been deeded to me by my father, notwithstanding the fact that through all the years since then, under the management of my stepfather, it had been kept rented to various persons. I had never received any income from it. When I undertook to make my home there, I possessed nothing in the world but the furniture of my own room at the hotel, bedstead, bookcase and a chest of drawers, a few books, my clothing and some small personal things kept in a little red chest Lauren Walker once made for me. My mother gave us bedding and a small two-leaf table. I made a dining room cupboard and purchased table furnishings and a small stove which with accessories cost $24.00. And it was with this meagre outfit in the spring of 1858, my wife and baby and I moved into our own property and set up housekeeping for ourselves. During the remainder of my residence in Nauvoo, this was my home. I continued my labours on the farm in connection with my brother. The forage cro crops the year before had been good, but the crop 
the corn crop was cut off by frost. Prospects at the opening of 58 seemed fair, but the season turned abnormally wet and the crops were backward. When fairly recovered from this handicap, they were attacked by army worms, so that when harvest time fully came, we had little or nothing to harvest. In the fall of 1857, I had been elected Justice of the Peace for the first time, and so set up my office in the keeping room of my home, relying upon the kindness of my stepfather for the use of a room in the hotel, in case I had to hear a trial, which required a large space than I had at home. There's a small picture on this page, um, page 53, and um, it's a picture of the old homestead and the wording underneath it says, Originally an Indian trading post, this log house became the first home of Joseph Smith the martyr when he moved to Nauvoo, and in this house young Joseph set up housekeeping with his wife Emmeline. I will describe it. It looks like it's in two parts. There's a kind of a small single story um, church. It looks kind of church like this building, but it's got an entrance um, with the low roof and the chimney, and it's got a second story at the back of it. Um, and it's um, clad in white. There's not many windows. Um, it's like three windows in the first section. You can't really see the back, and it's surrounded by tall um, Canadian um, conifer trees. <clears throat> I might have got that wrong. Or was it redwood? <laughs> it's not a coloured picture, it's a black and white one. Um, I wonder if it's still there. On to the next heading, bereavement. And so busy with cares, labour and responsibility, our lives move forward. On January the 25th, 1859, a second daughter was born to us, whom we named Emma... Tripping over my words again. Whom we named... Evelyn Rebecca. She was a beautiful, bright-spirited child, but not destined to stay with us long. In the ensuing summer, she became ill with reoccurring convulsions. A doctor named Thomas attended her, coming a number of times. For a while, she seemed to be improving, but near the end of the summer, either through his neglect or his failure to understand and treat the case properly, the little one died at eight months of age. The first sorrow of that kind a little, little household had known. I probably never shall forget the last few days which preceded this child's passing. She had seemed worse and I had called the doctor again. He brought another one with him when he came and they consulted over the case. They prescribed some strong medicine and then just went away and left her, unrelieved of her pain, restlessly moving her head from side to side as she lay in her little crib and constantly moaning with her suffering. The experience was a sad one for me. In many ways than one it seemed to break my wife's tender heart for one thing and for another so far destroyed my confidence in dr thomas that i cherished a very bitter resentment towards him <clears throat> i cherished a very bitter feeling towards him this resentment was so extreme that it took years of prayerful thoughts and much chastisement of spirit on my part before i was able to overcome it Sorry, once again, uh, overwhelmed with emotion. Can you imagine all of that again? <laughs> you can. Indeed, it was not until I received spiritual comfort from a higher source
that the unworthy feeling passed as I ceased to be exercised by the rebellion of our grief. And I'm going to stop reading there and have some comments now. Um, there are times in our lives that some things happen where we just um, do not communicate with heaven because we're upset and we feel betrayed and we feel, feel abandoned. And um, I'm not saying that this is the case for Joseph Smith III, but um, I do know that he didn't want to be associated um, with um, with any church, really. He did attend church, but he wasn't um, leading, he wasn't teaching, he wasn't, um, you know, putting all his mind on that. And so we see here that he was um, turning to doctors um, to find healing for in this situation and later on we see that he um connected again to heaven and received his comfort from heaven and sometimes it's hard for us to be comforted until we actually communicate with heaven i don't know if that makes any sense whatsoever but sometimes we can be bitter for a long time um we can be bitter about many things even bitter towards god um but it's not until we actually pour our hearts out and communicate and let everything pour out of us and then wait for some kind of um, response, answer, comfort um, that helps us to deal with what we've gone through. And um, so at this time, um, in these days there was a lot of hardship you know we're in a modern day now where we have so much help but going back in time i mean there was a lot of struggle and death was um well not far away um we are so lucky in this modern day but it's still good for us to turn our hearts to to heaven and to um, also be kind to ourselves and to speak kindly to ourselves when things are beyond our control and not to blame ourselves for things I'm gonna carry on I was not then in active connection with the church <clears throat> my wife was not a member and could scarcely indeed be called a believer in religion I had a latent confidence in the final triumph of goodness and had learned to be more stoic, stoical than she. I tried to comfort her as best I could, but discovered that my stoicism aroused in her a degree of displeasure, for she thought me callous and indifferent to the grief into which we had been plunged. By contact with those who were at enmity with the church and with Father during his lifetime, I had early learned the necessity for the repression of my feelings. And it had become more or less habitual with me that no matter how deeply I was feeling or how greatly suffering, I did not allow my emotions to appear upon the surface. <clears throat> it was the following spring I made up my mind to unite with the reorganised church and my wife offered no objection. With my mother I went to Amboy to attend the conference of that year. Of that year. We were not very superstitious, apparently, for we started on a Friday usually supposed to be an unlucky day. And in the face of one of the raging storms common along the Mississippi in the springtime, only by dint of strong determination was the river crossed. 
James S. Gifford acting as our ferryman. At Montrose, we took train for Amboy, and we arrived safely that same evening. It was not the first time that good fortune had proved to my mother that Friday was not an unlucky day for her or her family, but that, on the contrary, it was more frequently a day marked by specific triumph over difficulties. Mother and I united with the church at that conference, as is known. Upon our return home, I found that a great deal of prejudice has been aroused over our move, and that a certain portion of it had centred in the family of my wife's mother. Our relations with her remained fairly cordial in spite of this. And when our third daughter, Carrie Lucinda, was born, September 15th, 1861, she was at my house in affectionate attendance upon Emma. The next heading is Busy Tongues. Following the destruction of our crops by the army worms in 1858, the years following had further ill fortune. They were wet all the way through and we raised but little. When fall came, Frederick and I would find we had done a vast deal of work, but little or nothing to show for it. One day I took my wife to visit her mother, leaving her there for the day. Upon returning for her in the evening, I found her gloomy and sad, with traces of tears upon her face. Seeking the trouble, I learned that some of her mother's neighbours had been in during the afternoon, and that they had talked about me in, un in an unpleasant manner. They had discussed our affairs, they had discussed our affairs, had dis had stressed the fact that I had turned Mormon, and they called it, as they called it, and otherwise talked so disparagingly of me, of the work with which I was trying to make a living, and of its successive failures, that my wife had become quite discouraged and embittered towards me. I may as well confess that I was strongly stirred to anger over this occurrence. I tried not to exhibit any violence, but I told Mrs. Griswold very plainly that I would not allow my wife's peace and happiness to be placed in jeopardy by the gossip of neighbours or her mind poisoned against me in any such manner. I told her my own mother did not interfere in my family affairs and that I would not allow it if she tried to do so. And surely... What I would not allow my own mother to do, I would never allow others to indulge in. I had said that if she or other or any of her neighbours put their fingers in my pie, they might expect to get wrapped with the knife. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I did not wish to quarrel with her and I did not intend to have any bitterness now over what had occurred. But I made it clear that when I went out of her house, it must be in the peace it must be in peace or I would never cross her threshold again, nor consent for my wife to do so. I reminded her that she and my wife had known who I was before our marriage and they knew I was a farmer and a working man and were pretty well aware of the extent and limitations of my financial resources. I also told her my wife had known before our marriage just what I proposed to do in regard to religion if I felt so led. I finished by saying that if I could not bring my wife to her house without having my companion's mind poisoned against me, I should never again bring her under the shade of its roof. The scene was not a pleasant one. It was never in my nature to wish to quarrel with anyone, but I felt constrained to speak my mind plainly to both women on this occasion. When I had finished, I turned to my wife and said, Come Emma, let's go. She was all in tears and very evidently distressed. Very obviously, she hesitated, looking at her two children and saying, Oh, I don't know, if it were not for the little ones. 
but told her just to act according to her own pleasure and preferences and whatever at whatever cost to me taking out my watch i gave her five minutes in which to make up her mind what to do whether she would go with me or stay with her mother this may have seemed cruel but it is part and parcel of the story and romance of my life I was fully determined not to be at warfare with her or her family and so left her entirely free to make her own choice, resigned to have her leave me out of the reckoning if she felt inclined so to do. <clears throat> I am glad to say that her love for me triumphed and before the five minutes had expired she came to my aid, to my side. I put my wife and children into the wagon and we started for home, parting from her mother in a degree of peace and quietude but with a very fair understanding as to what should be the nature of our future relationship and associations. I do not now think there was any malice towards me in the heart of Mrs Griswold or her neighbours, but there was a deep-seated prejudice on account of my faith. It was true, I had been unfortunate in temporal matters the two years or more I had been farming with my brother, and it is true my financial affairs were in anything but a satisfactory condition. But I was young and strong and healthy and willing to work hard and in time could have made up my reverses and earned a living sufficient for us all. I had had no control over the army worms or over the other elements of nature which had caused our crops to be drowned out and prevented us from raising a desired quota of food supplies. And I thought it was unfair to have my wife's peace destroyed and her confidence in me shaken because of that which I could not help. So it was best to have an understanding and to end the controversy at once, rather than to allow bitterness and alienation to come between me and my wife, or between my wife and her mother's family, which might extend through years to come. The wisdom of this course was proved by the result, for not only were pacific relations restored at the time but i gained greater respect from my mother-in-law because of my stand which did not diminish with the years she usually spoke of me in most commentary terms and our cordial relations were never again shadowed with me by misunderstanding or contention she was kindly thoughtful in her way and as i have said was near emma in her later childbearing and childrearing trials and perplexities in the fall of 1861 i was re-elected justice of the peace and in connection with the law firm of Morrill and Riss, established an office two blocks from my home. I got along fairly well with my neighbours and clients, and with the exception of a degree of persecution which began to be felt in 1860, an account of which is given elsewhere in these narratives, life flowed along smoothly. The fees of the office I held augmented by the rewards of what work I was able to do in other directions gave us a fair living, as living was counted then and there. On, Oct on, um, excuse me. on April the 25th, 1863, our fourth daughter was born, whom we named Said Viola. This made three girls in our home. Two years and a half later, on October the 12th, 1865, our first son was born. We named him Joseph Arthur, the latter name in honour of my favourite uncle, Arthur Millican, with whom my association has been long and wonderfully pleasant. He was the soul of honour, and my aunt, father's youngest sister, Lucy, was one of the most pleasant-mannered women I have known. It was with this couple, by the way, that my grandmother, Lucy, made her home for a number of years. Finally coming to mother's. 
where she received all the loving care and attention a family could give until her death in 1855. <clears throat> Our little family now seemed quite complete and we were very happy. Soon after the coming of the boy, however, my wife's health began to fail. Naturally slight, she seemed too frail to carry easily the burdens of a mother and I began to live under a constant apprehension that she was entering a decline which would prove fatal. Um, the next title is more sorrow in eight in um i keep trying to say the wrong words <laughs> excuse me let me start again in january 1866 we moved to plano illinois and there took up abode in a house purchased by brother israel l rogers bishop of the church for my use while engaged with the editorial duties of the saints herald along with the first of march my wife grew very homesick. I arranged for her to go back to Nauvoo to visit her mother. She was to be attended on the journey by a sister comely who lived in Montrose. The train they took came through from Chicago at 10.30 in the afternoon. In the forenoon? Oh, in the morning. <laughs> at that time, as I assisted my wife and her little son on board the car, the knowledge came to me with all the force and certainty that could possibly attend an event before it happens, that I should never see the two alive together again. I was sure that one of or other would be lost to me. If the mother, the boy would be spared. If the boy, the mother would, be, would remain. While I knew her health had been gradually failing, he was a hearty, rugged little fellow, and the impression was hard to comprehend. I could not accompany them to Nauvoo, for I was under appointment to attend some conference meetings at Canton, but it was agreed that I should come that way in returning home and accompany her back. On Saturday of the following week, I received a dispatch from Nauvoo telling me the boy was ill and asking me to come as soon as possible. The conditions of travel at that time did not facilitate my leaving Canton immediately as I spent a number of anxious hours indeed trying to muster what faith I could under the prescience and shadow of approaching death that had been vouchsafed me. Leaving as soon as I could, the trip involved a walk from Hamilton opposite Kukuk, and it was not until late at night that I reached my mother's home. There I was met with the sad intelligence that the child had died the day before on the 12th of March. I also learned that shortly before the death of the boy, because of some manifestations to herself, the nature of which she never disclosed to me, my wife had received the ordinance of baptism at the hands of my brother. Once again, excuse my um, emotion, but can you imagine? Can you imagine the feelings and just feeling so desperate that you hand yourself over to baptism um this woman what a what an amazing thing that she loses her child and then she offers herself a baptism yes i don't know what you're thinking as you listen to all of this this is a different time from ours this is even completely different from uh, the way that Brigham Young was living. Brigham Young, we don't have his journals, but we have his lectures and how harshly he treated women 
and um, use them as ob objects really um, from the way he comes across. But here's um, Joseph Smith the third having um, not difficulties with his emotions but holding it all back, holding himself together but also having the feelings. Um, but in this day and age, this is um, the 1800s, well, the 1850s, 18, 1860s, what are we on now? 1866. Um, it's just we're so lucky. We're just so lucky in this day and age. Anyway, let's carry on. The funeral of our little babe. Actually, let me go back to um, my wife had received the ordinance of baptism at the hands of my brother David. This news was a great joy to me and I was happy to know she had at last joined me as a member of the church I loved. I think she found great comfort in it as well. The funeral of our little babe was held in the historic dining room of the mansion house where we listened to a discourse from one of our own elders upon the inscrutable ways of providence. We laid little form to rest beside that of the sister whom, who, he, who had preceded him on the hillside in the private burying grounds of the old homestead near the graves of my father, grandfather, Uncle Hiram and mother Lucy Smith. After the services were over, we remained to spend a day or two with my mother and with Emma's folks and then returned to our home in Plano. Sometime afterwards, my wife related a dream she had had, in which she said, in which she and I seemed to be riding together. By some means, we became separated, and she found we were travelling in different vehicles. Coming to a stream, she saw me pass safely over, but she went down into the depths of the water, seemingly unable to rejoin me. This dream seemed to have made a very deep impression upon her, her health continued to foul, its decline being hastened by an unfortunate miscarriage in which we lost the promise of another son. For five years I carried the ever-present consciousness that she whom I loved so dearly, the mother of my children and the companion of my bosom, would not remain with me, and for two whole years I never knew an undisturbed or unbroken night of rest and sleep. For ten years before she accepted the faith of the church, she had been mistress of my home, and in all that time, she had never in a single instance hesitated to let me go on church work wherever and whenever it was demanded. She had maintained her household with dignity and the bearing of a lady and had treated with uniform kindness and consideration those brethren and sisters of the church who entered my home. She had tried to bear cheerfully and with what fortitude she could muster the burdens which life and its relations laid upon her, and yet for all my longing desire... I was given to know that she was fighting a losing battle and was destined to leave me and her little ones to mourn the loss of a beloved wife and mother. This knowledge lay heavily upon my heart and spirit, with the exception of a brief interval of jealousy on my part towards another. Our married life had been a very happy one, undisturbed and unmarred by the quarrels and misunderstandings which are too often prevalent between married companions. The last two years of her life she spent in the peaceful consciousness that she had done what she could to prepare herself for the transition from this life to another. During her last sickness, which lasted some time, ten weeks, I did not have 
my clothing off except for purpose of cleanliness and change. And the only rest I knew was that obtained in the semi-conscious condition of an anxious watcher, aware of her every move and those of the nurses supplied by the good sisters of the church to sit with her through the dreary night vigils of pain and distress. At every moment of need, I was ready to arouse fully to render what aid I might to mitigate her suffering. A singular circumstance occurred one day soon after this last illness began. In response to her wish, she had received the administration of the elders of the church, who appointed with oil, who anointed with oil and laid their hands upon her head as they supplicated divine power for her relief. At the close of the ordinance, she was examined by her physician, John H. Lowe, and another whom he had called in for consultation. Both men pronounced her entirely free from any organic disease. Her lungs healed and every symptom of her former ailment having apparently disappeared. After this blessing, she gained rapidly in flesh and in feelings for a week or ten days. When all at once she was taken with a relapse, her travel returned with renewed force and on the March the 25th, 1869, she passed away. During this her illness, I had been fortunate in securing the services of a young woman by the name of Bertha Madison to assist in her care and that of the three little girls, Emma, Carrie and Saeed. She was the daughter of Elder Mads and Mary Thomason. Madison, both of whom had migrated from Norway under the auspices of the gospel, had met and married in La Salle, County, Illinois, where they had settled. I will carry on reading in the next episode. This episode has lots of ups and downs in it, and... I think we um, can be thankful for our lives, but um, I think that you can learn from Joseph Smith III that he did try in his life, and he's reflecting back a long way, and this, um, these memories were um, written um, at the, the latter part of his life, within the last 20 years of his life. Um, I think he, these were from his 70s, 80s and 90s. Actually, how long did he live? What age did he live till? I think he lives to a good age. Let me have a look. Yeah, I've, um, I've calculated that um, Joseph Smith III lived until he was about 82. So he's reflecting to the young part of his life. Um, so very good memories. Thank you for joining me. I wonder what your thoughts are on all these things. And I wonder how your life is. And how your life is varying. And how you've made amends with the things that have happened in your life. And how you've come to terms. And um, found peace within your own self. And peace with um, a creator or a universe. Or angels are just completely um, a peace within your own self, including nothing else except peace within yourself. They do say that when people have a belief, um, it gives them something to um, to live for. I wonder how you are. Over and out. On to the next episode, which is entitled miss madison and we'll continue to find out about miss madison <laughs>